Hello and welcome to the Expert Opinion in ENT series. Uh, this is Dan Robinson and today I am interviewing Dr. Nicholas Hogan. Nicholas Hogan is a paediatric anaesthetist who completed his training in Queensland. He did a fellowship in paediatric anaesthetics in Melbourne and he currently works at the Mater Children's Hospital in Brisbane as well as the Gold Coast Hospital as a paediatric anaesthetist. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, Dan. So, Nick, uh, today we're talking on paediatric anaesthetics, and I'd like to start by asking you how you assess the blood volume in children, and what are the signs of hypovolemia which you see in children? I guess this is this could potentially be quite a big topic. In terms of assessing blood volume in children, we think about it in a mils per kilo way, just to think about an actual volume or an estimated volume. So uh, a neonate would be somewhere in the order of 100 to 110 mils per kilo. Uh, a larger child, a toddler or a, or a preschool-aged child would be roughly... Uh, 90 to 100 mils per kilo, and then an older child is getting more towards the adult range of 80 to 90 mils per kilo. So that's that's uh, that's the actual blood volume. In terms of hypovolemia in children, once again, we tend to look at clinical signs. Preoperatively in a child, we would look at their basic observations, so their heart rate, blood pressure, their general perfusion, their colour, uh, their capillary refill, that type of thing, their urine output as well. But in a, in a more acute setting or intraoperatively, we can't look at a lot of those things. Uh, so we would tend to go mainly just on clinical signs. And in an acute setting, really, heart rate is probably the most useful thing. So heart rate, as a child becomes more and more hypovolemic due to bleeding generally, the heart rate will tend to increase until the child has lost probably close to 50% of its blood volume. So they're really well into stage four shock at which point the heart rate will start to precipitously fall. Blood pressure is, is something which uh, is quite stable, um, particularly through stages one and two shock. But once a child or anyone starts to enter stage three shock, the blood pressure characteristically will start to fall. So that's a sign of, of impending problems. Children, and particularly smaller children, well, with the exception of neonates, children have will mount a very vigorous compensatory response to hypovolemia and... Uh, will will, uh, hold their blood pressure more steady for longer than an adult, for example, which is something we have to think about. In neonates, how is that different? Neonates, they're just a bit more fragile. They have less ability to cope with all sorts of things physiologically. They'll certainly mount a vigorous response, but they're more likely to fatigue and tire and get into, well, certainly from a respiratory point of view, from a hemodynamic point of view, they have a small circulating volume and less less well-developed compensatory mechanisms. So they're, they're, they're not that dissimilar, but they are just more fragile and with less with a very small circulating volume to lose and less time to act if you have a, a serious problem. And Nick, uh, there has been some change in the fluid replacement recommendations in children. Are you able to uh, run over the recent the recommendations for fluid replacement in, in the paediatric population? Yeah, so fluids, once again, uh, you'll get different different opinions on fluid replacement from different people and from different parts of the medical community. Generally speaking, we tend to use Hartman's solution as a crystalloid solution for fluid replacement in children perioperatively. The reason for that, I think, is that large studies have shown that it's, it's probably the safest or one of the safest options, and it's the fluid that is physiologically the most similar to human human um, blood and, and, uh, and plasma. Normal saline is another fluid which is used extensively 
in children, but um, and, and and giving small small doses perioperatively for day case or relatively minor surgery is quite okay to use normal saline. But there are some some other risks such as uh, hypochloremic uh, metabolic acidosis, things like that start to come into play if you're giving large volume resuscitation with normal saline. In fluid maintenance in children, where children may be on some, uh, we have some dextrose added to the solution. Is mm-hmm. that is that still used or still recommended in uh, fluid replacement when children are on maintenance? Yes and no. So neonates do require sugar. Um, I think that's universally accepted. So quite often, a, a genuine neonate under one month of age will come to theatre on a dextrose infusion, for example. Uh, 10% dextrose in many cases. So that's one group where, once again, due to their immature physiology and glucose handling, they are prone to hypoglycemia, um, and so that's one group who will get sugar. Large studies have shown that, generally speaking, in paediatric patients, the risk of hypoglycemia in healthy children is very, very low, and the risk of the risks of hyperglycemia so iatrogenic hyperglycemia, are probably actually higher. So in many cases these days, certainly perioperatively, we don't put sugar into solutions. Children who are staying on surgical wards for days at a time uh, will often have a little bit of glucose or dextrose in their IV fluid, and um, the paediatric physicians will often chart that type of fluid. But it's not something we tend to chart. In relation to a child who may need fluid resuscitation, Mm. uh, what sort of figures do you use when uh, you are going to resuscitate a child and how much to give and how quickly? Yeah, so this is a a difficult question to answer in a simple fashion because uh, it really depends on the situation. It depends on how hypovolemic or dehydrated you think the child is, whether they're likely to lose more fluid, so if they're bleeding then more fluid will be required. It depends on the age of the child, depends on other medical conditions the child may have, that type of thing. So I guess, uh, you know, it's really context-specific, but in general terms, we think about a fluid deficit to begin with. So if they're coming for surgery, how much fluid do we need to give them to try and catch up to where they should be? And then we think about ongoing maintenance, so a rough hourly rate of fluid, and then we're going to give fluid on top of that to replace ongoing losses. If a child was hypovolemic, how many mils per kilo would you give them as a bolus to see if you can uh, adequately lower their uh, heart rate? So this depends on how, on I guess, the percentage of hypovolemia or dehydration that you think the child has. Generally speaking, a very rough guide is that 10 mils per kilo will raise the body fluid by about 1%. So if you have a child who's 10% dehydrated, which is very dehydrated, you might theoretically give something like 100 mils per kilo of fluid, which is a lot of fluid. And in practice, you wouldn't really do that. If you had a child who you were that worried about, you'd probably be uh, doing other investigations, gently resuscitating them up and starting to monitor urine output. And th- but this type of resuscitation in a very dehydrated patient to be conducted over hours or days while watching their electrolytes as well to make sure that their electrolytes aren't uh, being corrected too quickly, that type of thing. And leading on from that, when you do have a child who is in a state of shock or and you 
think that they need replacement with packed cells. As a general rule of thumb, how do you decide how much to give and how quickly to give it? So once again, well, we have to make an estimate of what, well, we have to try and find out what their haemoglobin is at that point in time and then make an estimate of what, what their circulating blood volume should be roughly and then, and then give products that are appropriate to try and get it back to, to closer to where it should be. Resuscitation involving blood products, particularly in the context of ongoing bleeding in surgery, it's a dynamic process. On one hand, where we're trying to assess how much we need, roughly how much we need to give. On the other hand, we're giving things such as crystalloids or blood products. Those are going into the body, but then they're being distributed different in different ways physiologically. So then we have to reassess where we are and then readjust what we're giving. So it's a dynamic process. But if you, say, have a child who's coming in after a lot of bleeding, the, the, the basic way to handle that would be try and find out what their haemoglobin is. The Giving a volume of something like 4 mils per kilo of red cells will increase the haemoglobin by one unit, approximately. And moving on to induction in a child, as a general rule of thumb, how do you approach induction or how, how you induce a child for an elective procedure? Well, I guess there, there are two ways to induce anaesthesia. One is intravenously, the other is using a, a spontaneously breathing or gas induction. My personal preference in smaller children, um, probably under the age of 8 to 10, is to do a gas induction. And that's a very commonplace way to do it. Uh, a gas induction is a much less threatening, scary thing for a child than an IV, having an intravenous cannula inserted. And we, we obviously take a thorough history, examine the child, have a long chat to the parents. I like to have a parent come into the room. That, that helps the child and it helps the parent to, to deal with the whole process, which is a scary process for parents. And then um, yeah, hold the mask on, drift them off to sleep, put in a cannula and then, uh, and then a, some sort of airway device. When you are drifting them off to sleep, what are the anaesthetic gas options in these, in these children and, and how do you make that decision? We, we pretty much use sevoflurane as our strong uh, anaesthetic agent, but we often use nitrous oxide mixed in with that. It's nice to start with nitrous oxide because it, it's odourless and the children breathe away on it for a few breaths and then often become a little bit sedated and, uh, and very relaxed and sometimes laugh and have, a, have a, a pleasant experience. And the other advantage to using nitrous and then adding sevoflurane is that it actually speeds up the induction. So using those two agents together for complex reasons I won't go into actually speeds up the process. So it makes it a quicker, smoother process. Does your approach for induction differ if a child is not fasted and they are obviously having a non-elective? How might you change your induction? Classically, in an unfasted child, we would aim to do an IV induction and a rapid sequence induction. And so a rapid sequence induction is quite simply designed to minimise the amount of time between when the child is awake and protecting their airway and when the child is asleep and we have a protected airway in so an endotracheal tube inflated. We use a rapid-acting sedative and a rapid-acting muscle relaxant, uh, succinamethonium, and usually propofol. Propofol sucks and drift them off to sleep quickly, cricoid pressure, and then intubate, usually within about literally 20 seconds, something like that. And obviously to provide that to a patient, you would need IV access before that? That's right. 
So this is where it can be challenging in children because sometimes they may be very difficult to cannulate, they may be very distressed by attempts to cannulate them. And so we sometimes have to um, bend the rules slightly and, and do what's necessary to get, get the child off to sleep. There are lots of different tricks, but sometimes we unfortunately have to go away from what is the absolute safest option, which is, a, as I've just described, an IV uh, rapid sequence induction. And uh, sometimes we even use, use inhaled agents to get them a little bit drowsy, or we even just use nitrous to get them a bit relaxed, quickly put a drip in that way. Or sometimes we're just committed to doing a gas induction and then uh, very quickly trying to get the tube in and minimise that risk of aspiration. And the gases that you would use in a gas induction in that scenario would be the same, civofluorine and nitrous oxide? Yeah, that's the quickest, that's the quickest way to, to achieve deep level of anaesthesia sufficient to put in a tube. And moving on to intubation in children, can you briefly run over how you decide to choose your size of endotracheal tube in a child uh, as a general rule of thumb? <clears throat> yeah, so the, the, the classic formula is age over four plus four for an uncuffed tube. If you have a child who's six years of age, six over four is 1.5 plus four, so a 5.5 size uncuffed tube. We obviously use a lot of cuff tubes these days, so people would tend to drop by half a size and use a cuff tube because the cuff theoretically adds to the outside diameter of the tube. That just gives you a rough idea of uh, where to go. You would generally, with experience, also just look at the size of the child physically, choose a tube, try to put it in, the rule, I, the thing I always say to registrars is never force a tube through the cords. So if it won't easily pass through, come out and go to a smaller size. And then we will um, adjust, you know, either inflate the cuff or if we're using uncuffed tubes, we may have to change the size of the tube if it's not appropriate. And moving on to perioperative pain relief, can you briefly give your approach to perioperative pain relief for a patient who, who's having a tonsillectomy? Tonsillectomy, we know, is a painful operation and studies have, have shown that uh, children will be sore for, quite sore for at least a week in many cases and, and, and will have ongoing pain for out to two weeks. So this is something which we know a lot more about these days and... Um, my general approach is to give paracetamol regularly. I, I will use a non-steroidal inflammatory drug if the ENT surgeon is happy for me to do that. Some are, some aren't, and that's absolutely fine. And then we use opioid medication. Classically, uh, codeine has been used in these children, but there are now a lot of concerns about the use of codeine in children because of um, a large variation in how the codeine is metabolised. Some children don't metabolise it to the active morphine, and so they don't get benefit. Um, some children metabolise it rapidly to the active form, which is morphine, and then can have respiratory depression. And there are at least two cases involving, unfortunately, involving children who've had tonsillectomy uh, in Australia who've had uh, a very significant adverse outcome from that uh, drug. So it's become such an issue now that a lot of or some children's hospitals no longer use codeine at all. Um, the British um, Drug Advisory Committee has suggested that codeine shouldn't be used in children, anyone under the age of 18 for this reason. And so that's just a bit of background. What we tend to use is oxycodone or something similar. So, and that's in a standard healthy child. And what, what dose of oxycodone uh, would you give these children? 
Yeah, so uh, 0 0.1 milligrams per kilo every four hours, PRN. Moving on to some emergency scenarios, uh, Nick, are you able to give me your approach to anaesthetic in a child with a post-tonsillectomy bleed? Yeah, sure. So in addition to all of the other things that we always do, the main issues in a post-tonsillectomy bleed are airway management, so securing uh, an airway in a child who is very high risk of aspiration and who may be very difficult to intubate due to blood and, uh, and foreign matter in the airway. And the other issue is uh, the possible need for resuscitation and blood products depending on the amount of blood that the child has lost. A couple of things that we do differently in a, in a post-tonsil bleed in theatre is that we will have um, additional airway equipment to allow us to get that tube in quickly and safely and we'll have two suction catheters under the pillow ready to use because one may just not be enough to remove blood if there's a lot of blood coming into the airway. We certainly worry a lot about intubating these children. They are, they are from our point of view, quite a high-risk type of case and we certainly breathe a sigh of relief when the tube is in safely and the airway is protected. And then obviously, you know, preoperative, we, we're going to assess and resuscitate the child if required and give blood products if required. In the situation of a child for an elective LBO, uh, what anaesthetic do you use for a child with a who is in a fasted state for an elective laryngoscopy, bronchoscopy and esophagoscopy? Yeah, so there are, once again, there are different ways to approach this. My approach is to do a spontaneously breathing technique usually using a volatile anaesthetic agent, so sevoflurane. Have the child breathing spontaneously, get them deep, spray the cords, hand over the airway to the ENT surgeon, who in, in, in most places I've worked will use a, a bronchoscope with a side port for us to connect our circuits, our Storts type uh, device, so that we can continue to deliver a volatile agent, keep the child deep, but still provide oxygen and and ventilation assistance if required through the device. Once the larynx and bronch uh, are done, we can uh, then come out. We would often put in an endotracheal tube then and uh, swing that to the side and allow the ENT surgeon to go back down and do the esophagoscopy. How would you approach a child who had a foreign body in their airway and they needed to have a an LBO for that and a removal of the foreign body, how would you approach that anaesthetic? These are potentially very challenging and high-risk cases for us and for the ENT surgeons. There are a lot of things to think about in these cases, particularly what we think is in the airway and where it is. If it's something small, which is probably distal and hasn't been there for a long time, we're, we're at relatively low risk of having a major airway obstruction and, and getting into a lot of difficulty with the with ventilating the child and keeping them alive. If, on the other hand, we think it's a large object which may be sitting in the large airways, particularly in the larynx or the trachea, that, that's a very different story. Another different story is that if we think there's a foreign body obstructing uh, a lobe of the lung or one of the lungs completely, and it's been there for some time, because there could be a lot of inflammation and infection behind that, and there could be a lot of pus which could soil other parts of the lung or all of the lungs in a worst-case scenario. The approach is a very careful assessment, gathering as much information as possible. I guess the classic way of anaesthetising these children is to have them spontaneously breathing the whole time. There's this theoretical risk that if we positively pressure ventilate these children, we may push something further down into the lung and, uh, and make a problem worse. 
If we have the child spontaneously breathing on a volatile agent and don't introduce other drugs which will take away its respiratory drive, we have probably the safest conditions that we can have because when we're doing the, the, the least amount to manipulate that child's breathing and generally speaking that will allow safe anaesthesia and safe conditions for the ENT surgeon to go in using once again a Storz type device with our circuit connected on the side to, and it allows them to go in and, and, and get, get in and out of the uh, foreign body. We'd we'll like to thank Dr Nicholas Hogan for his time and uh, for giving us his uh, expert opinion on paediatric anaesthesia today. Tune in to the podcast for further podcasts or updates via the website.